and welcome. Episode number 105 of the Ball Don't Lie podcast. My name is Adi Elmore. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Last week, I got some people fired up. People all honked off about the NFL college football comparison. Why I like the NFL more. That's okay. It's okay. We don't have to choose. College is on Saturdays. The NFL is on Sundays. We can enjoy both. That's okay. If I didn't tell you already, I'm Audie Elmore. You can follow me on Twitter at Audie Elmore, A-U-T-Y-E-L-M-O-R-E. I have posted a poll question there. I want to know, by 2030, who makes the playoffs first? The Cincinnati Bengals or the Cincinnati Reds? We'll talk about that a little bit today. We will go through week two of the National Football League. I'll give you some general thoughts, what I took away from that week in the NFL. And also, we'll dive a little bit into the Bengals, who, what a difference a week can make, honestly, when you think about this team and coming off of a thrilling week one victory over the Minnesota Vikings, turning around and losing an embarrassing offensive performance and more against the Chicago Bears. We'll talk about that. And plus, I, I do want to talk about the Reds in the second segment because this might be the end of a window. The window might be closed for this team in the next 10, 11 days from now when the season is over and assuming at this point now that that they don't make the playoffs. We'll talk about that as well. But let's start with the NFL. Week two is uh, in the books, finished last night with Monday Night Football and it started on Thursday night in Washington. The FedEx Field hosted the football team and the Giants. It was a really good game. Graham Gano went off for the New York Giants, but the football team edged it out with a Dustin Hopkins game-winning field goal as time actually on an untimed down. The Giants jumped off sides on a, uh, by the nose tackle on the field goal attempt to, to win the game. How do you jump off sides when you're the nose tackle? That's what I want to know. Football team wins at 30-29. to They're 1-1. One one. The Giants are 0-2. Terry McLaurin, former Buckeye, becomes the first Washington player with 10-plus catches, 100-plus yards, and a touchdown since Pierre Garçon in 2014. Patriots and the Jets at MetLife Stadium. And the Patriots destroyed the Jets 25-6. to Rookie quarterback Zach Wilson looked terrible. I think Bill Belichick is now something like 26 and 7 or 26 and 5 or something like that against rookie quarterbacks. The Patriots have won 11 consecutive games against the Jets. The Jets are 0 2. The Pats 1 and 1. Things are not getting easier for Urban Meyer in Jacksonville. Broncos over the Jags 23 to 13 on Sunday. The Jags have lost 17 straight games. That's tied for the longest streak since the streak since the Detroit Lions. From 07 to 09. The Broncos are 2-0. They look good. I wondered preseason, what am I missing about the Denver Broncos? They've looked good so far. Teddy Bridgewater has taken a lot of deep shots. Vic Fangio's defense seems fine. They're a little healthier than they've been in years past. Cortland Sutton, a formidable wide receiver who creates a lot of different problems for defenses. And Urban Meyer released a statement after the Jags lost 0-2, and you can tell already how losing is affecting Urban Meyer because nobody releases a statement after starting 0-2 and basically just said to hang with us and we will get better and, and, and go to sleep knowing that we're working harder to get better. So I thought that was a little bit interesting. The Jags are 0-2. Bills and Dolphins. Bills got right. Dolphins got hurt. Tua Tagovailoa leaves the game. Looks like he might be out for a couple of weeks. Buffalo destroys the Dolphins 35 to nothing. Both of these teams are 1-1, one and, one, and that is the largest shutout win since week three of 1992 
for the Buffalo Bills. Niners and Eagles in Philly. Philadelphia edges out, uh, excuse me, Philadelphia loses an ugly game to the 49ers, 17-11. to San Francisco now 2-0, and and the Eagles are 1-1. and San Francisco has made the Super Bowl in each of the last two seasons in which they started 2-0. and Rams and Colts in Indianapolis. This was a really, really good game. The Rams appear to be the real deal. People have been talking about them. The NFC West is a tough division. You've got Seattle out there. You've got the Rams. The Arizona Cardinals have looked really good so far. And, of course, the San Francisco 49ers, of which we just talked about. Seattle, or excuse me, Saint, uh, the, the Rams, I, w- I almost called them the St. Louis Rams, uh, outslugged the Colts 27-24. Carson Wentz sprained both of his ankles. This poor guy cannot do anything right when it comes to injury. He just keeps getting hurt, and there are these weird fluke injuries. It's just really strange. But the Rams are 2-0 and for the first time, or for the fourth straight season. The Colts are 0-2. Uh, Raiders and the Steelers, I really like the Raiders going into this game. I thought that the Steelers were struggling a lot offensively. I thought the Raiders are much improved defensively. And, you know, even though it was going to be a cross-country road trip and a tough environment at Heinz Field, I felt really good about the Raiders, and the Raiders won 26-17. They're 2-0. The Steelers are 1-1. Derek Carr leads the NFL in pass yards through two weeks and does so by 128 yards. He's been very impressive. He had 350-plus passing yards and two passing touchdowns, and he's done that uh, for three straight games. That's the longest streak in Raider history, which is very impressive considering their past. Texans and Browns in Cleveland. Cleveland comes away uh, 31-21 victors. Both teams now 1-1. One one. Terod Taylor and the Texans played this game pretty well. A lot of people said they played better uh, the Browns did in the game that they lost than they did this past week against the Texans. And Cleveland now is 6-0 and in games following a loss under Kevin Stefanski. They are struggling to put together a young defense. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, how much that affects them moving forward. Saints and Panthers, a week after the Saints looked like the best team in the NFL, they got destroyed by the Carolina Panthers 26-7. Sam Darnold, his first 2-0 start of his career, obviously spent a lot of time with the New York Jets. Panthers look for real. Matt Rule looks for real. Saints struggling with injuries, with an offense, with Jameis Winston, and with, I think, eight coaches that were out with COVID-19 going into this game. Vikings-Cardinals was a really fun day, fun game. was probably going to be the funnest game of the weekend until we got to Sunday night. Cardinals take down the Vikings 34-33. Greg Joseph missed a field goal to win the game, and, and a short one at that. The Vikings very very well could be 2-0, and but no, they're 0-2. Arizona, though, 2-0. and Home team has won eight of the each, each of the last eight matchups. I'm struggling to talk today. Uh, in this series between the Cardinals and the Vikings. Falcons and Buccaneers, Buccaneers all over them. Falcons kept it close, a little longer, I'm sure, than Tampa would like. 48-25, Tampa wins. They're 2-0. Tom Brady has now had four-plus passing touchdowns in four straight games. That's the second-longest streak since 1950. It's tied for that streak. Titans-Seahawks, another great game. Seattle falls to the Titans 33-30. Derrick Henry had 41 total touches for 237 total yards and three touchdowns. That guy is a beast. Both of those teams are one and one. Cowboys had a very impressive performance at SoFi Stadium against the Los Angeles Chargers. Greg Zerline hits a game-winning 56-yard field goal as time expires to give them a 20-17 victory. Each of those teams 
are one and one. Sunday night football, fantastic matchup back and forth. The Baltimore Ravens edge out the Kansas City Chiefs 36-35. Lamar Jackson's ninth career game with 100-plus passing yards and 100-plus rushing yards. That is the most since 1950. Both those teams are 1-1. One one. Monday Night Football, last night, Packers over the Lions 35-17. Green Bay gets right. They are 1-1. One one. The Lions are 0-2 again. Aaron Jones is the first running back in Green Bay history with three receiving touchdowns and a rushing touchdown in a single game. Aaron Rodgers got right as well. Four touchdowns in, I believe, 22 completions for number 12. So the one game I didn't talk about is the Bengals, and we'll get to the Bengals and the Bears in just a minute, but a couple of thoughts. Uh, The first one is on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They are defending Super Bowl champions, and they look like it. They look like a very good football team, and I can't see, as it currently stands, anybody beating this team. I I, I can't see – I didn't think really that they would – that they would come out and play as good as they have, especially after a, a, a struggling start that they had last year. But Tom Brady looks as good as he's ever looked, and, and this stat has been floating around about Brady, and it's it's really kind of unbelievable. He is just 13 passing touchdowns away, and he'll get that this year as long as he stays healthy. But even then, he's 44 years old. Listen to the rest of this stat. He needs 13 more passing touchdowns to have more passing touchdowns in his 40s than he did in his 20s. Like do do we understand like, fathom how unbelievable that is for Tom Brady? Like that's seriously crazy. He's 44 years old. I think, right? Like 44, 45, something he may have just turned 45. And he needs 13 more to reach the number and pass the number he had when he was in his 20s. It just is, is seriously unbelievable. He's got nine touchdowns through two games already. I can't see them being beat at the moment. Now, obviously, there is going to be a Super Bowl hangover. It's really difficult to repeat. Nobody ever repeats. And, and teams will get better than how they are currently. There's a bunch, a bunch of one-on-one teams in the NFL. I think there's still a bunch of good teams in the NFL. I mean, the Los Angeles Rams will have something to say about it in the NFC. I still think the Packers are a, a Super Bowl-caliber team. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be really, really interesting to see how that shapes up. And if the Dallas Cowboys can play balanced football and good defensive football like they did on Sunday against the Chargers, I know people hate the Cowboys. I've always been kind of indifferent about them. But if the Cowboys can can do the, can complete the formula, I guess, execute the formula in which their team is built upon, they can make some noise. I really do think that they're a pretty good football team top to bottom as well. One thing, and and I spent all of yesterday or all of last week talking about rules. It felt like in the NFL, and and there's one rule that that well, th- this sucks by the NFL, and they do this every couple of years. Well, they will have a rule in which they really, really, really enforce it through the first quarter of the season to try to get people to stop. Or for some reason, they think it's a good idea to implement this rule, and then everybody enforces it, and the crowd, and, and the fans, and the people, and the consumers, everybody watching it say, "What the hell are you doing? Like this makes no sense whatsoever." And our candidate for that decision this year is the taunting rule. Now listen, I don't like when when guys get up in dudes' face for, for for no good reason at all. Especially you know a defensive back who quarterback throws the ball eight yards out of bounds and the defender gets in the receiver's face and moves his hands back and forth like he's saying incompletion. The defensive back did nothing. Like he did absolutely nothing in that particular situation. 
that sort of stuff happens a lot. First downs, I think guys get a little bit too crazy. Maybe I'm just an old man yelling at a cloud and get off my lawn type of thing. But at the same time, I do think there's a fine line there with when it comes to taunting. And the NFL this year has decided that taunting is illegal and, and you can't be doing it and, and, and all this stuff. And part of that emotion is what makes the NFL great, to, to get up in some guy's face, to let them know you just lit them up, to let them know you just stopped them on third down, yada, yada, yada. And there's something to be said about going and celebrating with your teammates. But, you know, this these are also professional athletes. You know, there, there's no feelings around here. Like, nobody's going to get their feelings hurt for getting up in their face. It's not like – like, this is – this is competitive nature, right? You're letting people know. And and I don't have any problem really with, with the quote-unquote taunting that is now being penalized in the NFL. And some of these these penalties this week were awful. And, and I'm just going to call it as it is. I'm not going to sit here and defend the NFL like I have in the past because this is bad. This takes away from the game. A perfect example happened in the Bengals-Bears game. Third and 12, back in the end zone. Andy Dalton throws a pass. Uh, Von Bell uh, affects the pass and, and lets Andy know, hey, you, you ain't going to do that on me. 15-yard penalty first down. And he didn't really get in his face. He just talked toward him. Like, that's whack. You cannot be affecting games like that. That's the same thing that we struggled with a couple of years ago with the pass interference situation. Like, why are you doing this with the the quarterback body weight rule from several years ago? What are you doing? Like, how are you affecting a game so much? The officials should have the least effect on a game of anybody. And yet, these calls, these moments are having a bigger effect than almost anything. That shouldn't be happening. The NFL has messed up this rule, and here's what's going to happen. And it happens every time they do this. They will enforce it heavily over the first quarter of the season, so the next two or three more games. And then as the outlash, the backlash and outcry continues to grow stronger, eventually they'll tell the officials, hey, tone it down a little bit, You know, quit calling this as much, let the guys play. And then that just tells me, number one, it's a stupid rule. It was flawed in the first place. It should have never been happening. It's just frustrating that we do this dance with the NFL rules every couple of years I don't understand exactly what they're trying to prove. I don't understand exactly why. These are professionals. These are grown men. They can handle themselves. Just let the kids play football. Let, or let the guys play football. I just called them men and then called them kids. Let the guys play football. Like, they can get up in their face. That's fine. If people start throwing punches, if they spit on each other, if they're shoving, grabbing face masks, going to the ground, then obviously you flag them. But letting a dude know that I just got a first down, letting a dude know that you ain't going to be throwing that on me, I mean, come on. That's whack. Speaking of whack, let's talk about the Bengals for a minute. They fall to the Chicago Bears 20-17 to in Chicago on Sunday. The Bears defense had four takeaways in the second half. Three of them came on interceptions of Joe Burrow. And Burrow had a, a bit of a crazy stretch there in the second half of, of passes. He threw interception, interception, interception on three straight passes. And then his next two passes were touchdown, touchdown. So five straight passes, pick, pick, pick touchdown touchdown that is really strange it feels like that's something that doesn't happen very much at all this was a low scoring game at halftime seven nothing bears Bengals defense played good Andy Dalton came out opening drive of the game marched the bears right down the field nine plays 43 yards uh five minute touchdown it was it was a really impressive drive Andy Dalton connected with Allen Robinson for an 11 yard touchdown the Bengals offense did what they did last week which was they struggled to get going early but The Bengals' defense also did what they did last week, and that's give the offense time to figure it out. 
But whatever happened this week with the game plan with Zach Taylor, it didn't really make any sense. And a lot of people have said that, and we've talked about it this week on the local airwaves here, is that you look at what the Bears did in week one against the Los Angeles Rams and the way that they, uh, the, the Rams pushed the ball down the field. Do you look at the way the Bengals were successful down the field last week against the Minnesota Vikings, and you think, okay, well, the Bengals are going to try to do that again. The problem is, though, that the Bengals hardly did that at all. They took a few deep shots. They connected on one of them, Jamar Chase, a 42-yard touchdown in the second half from Joe Burrow. But it felt like it was too little too late for this team. There were momentum plays in which the Bengals couldn't capitalize. Trey Hendrickson gets a strip sack of Justin Fields. Logan Wilson can't scoop and score, but they do force a Bears punt, only to be followed by the ensuing possession. Burrow connects with T. Higgins. He fumbles and gives the ball right back to them. Couldn't capitalize on that momentum. I'd like to really know where this game goes if it wasn't for that T. Higgins fumble. First drive after halftime. Bengals are facing a third down. Burrow gets hit late out of bounds. A little bit of an acting job from Joey B. Keeps the drive alive, 15 yards. They get three. It's good, but you really couldn't seize the momentum of that 15-yard penalty by getting six. It just, you wonder about this team and specifically the offensive game plan. They couldn't run the ball effectively. And so here's what the most concerning part of it is. Through two games, Joe Burrow's been sacked nine times. That means he's on pace to get sacked 76 plus times. This is a guy who, I'm not sure if you know this or not, is coming off of major knee reconstructive knee surgery. He didn't hold up last year because you failed to protect him. What makes you think through the first two games that you're going to be able to protect him moving forward? And when you can't protect him, that in turn affects the offense. It affects the scheme. It affects the way you move the ball down the field. If you can't go deep, then why'd you draft Jamar Chase? If you can't go deep, then why are we in this situation whatsoever? If you have all these weapons, then you need to do the right things to, to surround your quarterback with enough protection so that you can make the maximum use of these weapons, right? I think Jamar Chase in the first round was the right pick for the Bengals, but it's not the right pick if the Bengals refuse to make the rest of the offensive line better. They got Riley Reef. Jonah Williams is healthy. Quentin Spain and Xavier Suofilo came back? Really? Trey Hopkins coming off of a torn ACL? The Bengals are reaping what they've sown when it comes to their inability to protect Joe Burrow, their inability to make the offense better. And here's what I don't understand. If you're going to spend $250, $260 million on your defense because it needs upgraded desperately, then good. That, that makes sense. But if you're going to spend that much money on your defense, why on God's green earth wouldn't you spend that much money on your offense too because you know how much your offense needs help too? That's what I just don't quite understand. And the money that they've spent on defense is working. The Bengals gave up their fewest yards in seven years on Sunday. Sure, they were going up against a rookie quarterback in Justin Fields for the most part of that game. Logan Wilson with an interception, multiple sacks, Trey Hendrickson, Sam Hubbard, DJ Reader, guys that have spent the Bengals have spent a lot of money on. It's working for them. But I cannot fathom why you can't do the same thing on the offensive side of the ball. Zach Taylor's taking a lot of heat, and I think he deserves a lot of heat, 
But at the same time, it's the same conversation we've had with David Bell and trying to use the bullpen, right? Because the bullpen sucks. He doesn't really have anybody he can trust to run out there. Well, Zach Taylor probably doesn't really have anybody he can trust to run out there on offensive line, which then leads him to become a a very successful down-the-field scheme where they can go to Jamar Chase, where they can hit T. Higgins on those intermediate passes, where they can then open up the run game, where the run game is actually effective. All these things work together, and the Bengals are facing the negligence in which they've shown by not protecting Joe Burrow. I think you look at this team top to bottom, they're a better football team. I think a lot of people would say that. But the problem is when you don't actively make the offensive line better, you're going to have games like you did on Sunday where the Bears with a really stout defensive front, and by the way, most teams in the NFL have that these days, you're going to struggle. But here's the flip side of that, and I understand what I just said is Zach Taylor may not have the pieces to do what he wants to do. He needs to do a better job of, of creating out of what he does have. Because you didn't see anything of what you would normally do to alleviate pressure on a young quarterback. The Bengals went empty a lot. And if you don't know what empty is, that means five offensive linemen and Joe Burrow's the only one in the backfield. This is where Burrow really excelled in college at LSU. This is where he's most comfortable. That's fine, but as Rocky Boyman pointed out on Twitter, if you can't protect using empty, you can't use empty. You can't go empty if you can't protect him. But the Bengals didn't bring in extra guys to block hardly at all. They didn't get a lot of outside runs to get the defense moving in a different direction. They used very little pre-snap motion to get some guys out of the box. They didn't run any quick screens to the quarter or to the wide receivers or even to the tight end or even to Joe Mixon. They didn't allow that rush to come in and then go over top of it. They didn't do anything that you would normally they didn't move Joe Burrow out of the pocket like we've seen in the past so then my question is is Joe Burrow 100% healthy number one is he on a pitch count number two and if one of the two is is true then should he be playing in the first place right and if also if one of the two is true really should he be playing with this offensive line 76 times he's on pace to get sacked this year So there's blame to go around about the Bengals being one and one. But here's the thing. I think they're okay. I'm not panicking about this team. This is not a playoff team. We knew that going into this season. But you want to see them take a step forward. This is a massive year for Zach Taylor. He can't make any mistakes because I wonder if he does, if he'll lose his job. I get the feeling that he will. It's not off to a good start with the way they played in Chicago because they should have won that football game. They came back and made it a three-point game. They basically ran out of time. But you can't wait until the end of the game. You can't turn the ball over several times. And let's talk about really quick about the interceptions in Joe Burrow. The third one wasn't his fault. He got hit as he threw. It could have been probably ruled a fumble either way, but it's it's ruled an interception. No big deal. The first one, Burrow just looked at – he just never saw Roquan Smith. Roquan Smith played a, made a good play, read it, read Burrow's eyes, bad throw Burrow. He felt like he was forcing something. Burrow said that after the game. 
Second play, Bears are in his own defense. They drop back. Cornerback's watching Burrow's eyes the whole time. Burrow just tries to force it in. It's intercepted by Jalen Johnson. Two really bad throws, two really bad decisions by Joe Burrow. That's all there is to it. This guy's the future. He's the franchise. I, I believe in him. He made two really bad throws. And I think he did so as a result of feeling like he had to force something in because nothing else on the offense was working. And I tend to agree with him on that. When I come back on the other side of the break, wow, 25 minutes almost already, I'm going to talk about the Cincinnati Reds because they have 10, 11 days left in their season. It looks like now they're not going to make the playoffs. It looks like that dream is over. But now where do they go from here? Where are they at moving forward? Where are they when it comes to the future of this franchise? And who's going to make the playoffs first by 2030? 30. The Bengals or the Reds? And is there actually enough optimism with nine years to go that either of them will? I don't know. More on that on the other side. This is the Ball Don't Lie podcast. Welcome back. Ball Don't Lie podcast. Adi Elmore, I'm your host, Talked a lot of football in the first segment. Let's talk about some baseball real quick because these are a um, interesting. These are interesting times for the Cincinnati Reds. I am recording this. It is Tuesday afternoon. The Reds are coming off of a victory Monday night over the Pittsburgh Pirates to put them at seventy-eight and seventy-three on the season. They are. Still in play for the National League's second wild card spot, and they are behind the Atlanta Braves and behind the St. Louis Cardinals for that particular spot. And let's be honest, it, it's relatively unlikely that they're going to make it. According to baseballreference.com, they have a 17.3% chance to make the postseason. This is a team that was up comfortably in the postseason. I, I read the standings wrong, by the way. The Reds are three games out behind the St. Louis Cardinals. I was looking at the wrong sheet here. Uh, behind the St. Louis Cardinals for the National League's second wild card spot. There are 11 games to play at the time I'm recording this. St. Louis is 80 and 69. The Bengals, or excuse me, the Reds, 78 and 73. Obviously, uh, it, it seems bleak. For this this team, this organization, and the reason I'm I'm a little bit concerned is because we're just two off seasons removed from when this team spent a lot of money in free agency. They went after guys like Mike Musakis. They went after Nick Castellanos. Joey Votto has had a resurgence. Jesse Winker and, and Castellanos were all stars this year. Tucker Barnhart is a question mark in this off season. He's more than likely a free agent, and and I get the vibe he's not going to come back. You don't know what Nick Senzel is going to be or where he's going to be with this team moving forward. You really don't have anybody in the outfield besides Jesse Winker because Nick Castellanos has an option after this season, and it's almost a formality. He will not be coming back. Then you have a, a team option for David Bell, who it, – for all intents and purposes, has done okay with what he's had, but it doesn't seem like he necessarily aligns with the current 
front office and, and, and management. You look also at the future of this team. You've got Jonathan India and Tyler Stevenson who have cemented themselves as guys that are going to be everyday players moving forward. Joy Votto still has a couple of years remaining. You have a huge question mark in Eugenio Suarez who's making $10 million a year and hitting 175. Shogo Akiyama was a part of the previous regime when Dick Williams was the general manager. He's hardly played over the last several months. So really, what is the makeup of this team? Oh, by the way, you've got Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo in Louisville, and they're expected, I would assume, around the All-Star break or after in 2022. And the turning point with this team was when Dick Williams walked away because he built this team into the contender that it is. When he took over in, in 2019, they really became aggressive in the pursuit of winning championships. They had good pitching. They went and got Trevor Bauer. They went and got Yasiel Puig. They traded away a bad contract in Homer Bailey. They got better and better and better and signed Castellanos and Moustakis. And the bullpen was okay. And they uh, obviously put themselves in a really good position last year. They made the playoffs, but didn't score any runs, and lost the two games to the Atlanta Braves. Then they come back this year, and Dick Williams obviously left, and they just haven't really – Dick Williams left last season as well. and and But the team last year was the team that he had built. And so the Reds had a full offseason with Nick Kroll as the general manager, and they didn't really do anything. They didn't make their team better. They didn't go after anybody. They didn't – do anything to, to push them a step ahead, a step forward from where they were in 2020. And you're seeing what's happened with that. Obviously, you are excited about what you got from India, what you got from Stevenson, knowing those guys are, are big leaguers. You're excited about Joey Votto returning to form and hitting with power. You're excited about Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo coming up. You're excited about what you saw from Tyler Malley. You're excited that Luis Castillo has come back to form in the second part of the season. You've got question marks, though, with Sonny Gray. You've got question marks with Derek Johnson, who the pitching coach, who is in a, a contract year as well. You took a massive step forward offensively, but you took a massive step backward offensively when you needed it the most down the stretch run of this season, which has put them in the position they're in at a 17% chance to make the playoffs and three games behind the St. Louis Cardinals for the second wild card spot. And then on, add on top of that, you know, when Dick Williams took over and, and, and I said he made the pitching better, part of that was driveline baseball, which is headed by Kyle Bodie. And Kyle Bodie came in and worked with the Reds' young pitchers and, and, and took them ahead of the game. And there were articles written about how far ahead of the game Reds' pitchers were and, and the Reds' pitching development system were was with these young players. It created a, a want for young pitchers to come to Cincinnati. And Trevor Bauer was a big part of that as well. And Kyle Bodie was the director of pitching development. Over the weekend, last weekend, Kyle Bodie and the Reds parted ways. And Kyle Bodie made it pretty obvious that the Reds are going in a different direction than he is. And certainly in the way in which player development is approached. Same with C.J. Gilman, who is the Reds' director of, of hitting development. He's gone. And he's not going to be coming back. There's been others that have left the organization. It seems like the Reds are doing an about-face in what has gotten them to the success in which they are currently at and going a different direction. 
And the question that I posed on 700 WLW with Jeff Carr, and, and, and you've heard him on this podcast before, is who in a decision-making role at Great American Ballpark do you trust? You trust Bob Castellini, Phil Castellini, the, the head of the ownership group, those two? Do you trust Nick Crawl, a, a very unproven general manager that has done nothing to make his team uh, a really competitive one towards going for a championship, going for the division? Guy that didn't do anything about the shortstop position, didn't do anything about the bullpen in the offseason, got a couple of decent guys at the All-Star break this year? Do you trust David Bell, who we don't know if he'll be back after this season? I don't think David Bell deserves a ton of blame. I don't think he deserves a ton of credit either. It just feels to me like there is some sort of organizational disconnect between Castellini, Crawl, Bell, and the players on the field that has led to where we're at now, which is approaching an offseason in which they're probably going to miss the playoffs in a disappointing second-half collapse in which they were comfortably ahead, I think, at one point. I don't know if you can say comfortably, but two games up on the San Diego Padres in the National League wildcard spot, and they lost eight consecutive series. That is a massive collapse. And you go into this season full of question marks, all those things I just named, and you wonder legitimately about the future of this organization, the direction of this organization. I mean, they are 10th in the National League in attendance this year. It's not like the fans are excited. And and this is the, the part of it I think that is really interesting, is that the fans are more fed up with Reds baseball and with ownership and with the franchise in general than I can ever remember in my lifetime. 25 years, 26 years on this earth for me, and I have never, never seen – the fan base so angry and frustrated with Red's ownership. I don't know what caused the change. I don't know what the difference is. But Bob Castellini took over this team. He bought it in 2006 and said, we're going to bring championship baseball to Cincinnati. He hasn't done that. They've made the playoffs a few times. They've never won a playoff series under Bob Castellini. Haven't won a playoff series since 1995. So at what point do you look at what you're doing and say it's not working. It's at the Reds game last night. There's a kid out there. He's he's several years younger than me holding up a sign saying, sell the team, Bob. Listen, what I love about Cincinnati, what I love about this city, what I love about this baseball team and this franchise is that the, the team is interwoven in the fabric of this city. It is a part of the foundation of this city, right? This this team, this is the first professional team, the Red Stockings. You have a deep, a rich baseball history in this town. You've got the best baseball team ever assembled in the Big Red Machine. You've got the Great Eight. You've got all these Hall of Famers. You have the 1990 Wire to Wire Reds. You've got Hall of Famers left and right. You've got the largest team Hall of Fame in baseball. You've got the hit king in Pete Rose. You've got the greatest, in my opinion, all-around baseball player of all time, Ken Griffey Jr., who spent significant time here. You've got five World Series championships. You've got so much, and yet you have nothing over the last 25, 26 years. Really 30 years, 30-plus 30 years. When you think about 1990, the last time they won the World Series. And you're approaching now a part in, in your franchise in which, you know, the, the teams from the 70s, the, the Big Red Machine, their fans 
are not going to be around much longer. The, the, the memories in, are dying and they're fading. And it's time to create something more. It's time to return to championship-level baseball. And I wonder legitimately if those in positions of power, those in decision-making positions at Great American Ballpark, A, understand that, and B, possess the capability to make the decisions to put this team and this franchise on the right track for a successful future. I don't know that they do. I honestly, truly don't. And that sucks as a fan of Reds baseball and as a person that lives in this city because you have to deal with this team who's probably going to hover around 500 next year. I deserve better than that as a Reds fan. Every Reds fan deserves better than that. Every person in this city deserves better than that. You have got to hold yourself to a standard that is up there with the big red machine. That's up there with the wire-to-wire Reds. That's up there with the rich baseball history this franchise has had in years past. And if not, you're in the wrong business. Bob Castellini has millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. He owns the Castellini Corporation. He could sell the Reds for billions. So I don't understand the decisions to cut payroll. I don't understand the decisions to 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 trim the budget. I'm not a businessman. I don't pretend to be, but I know that this organization's not hurting for money. I know that all these teams in baseball that cry poverty are not hurting for money. I just want somebody down there to say and and act like baseball and winning championships is the number one priority priority over lining the pockets, over making the money, over the bottom line. Again, if baseball and winning championships in Cincinnati for Cincinnati is not your number one priority, you are in the wrong business. That's all there is to it, period, point blank. Got me all fired up, man. It's just it's frustrating, man, because you know the 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 fans and, and the, this team, they the, the city, the, everybody deserves better. Everybody deserves better than what they've gotten. And and you look at a window that has it feels like has closed over the past couple of weeks with these eight consecutive series losses by the Reds, and you just wonder about about the future. You wonder about where this team is headed, where it's going to go, and who's going to be in charge leading them down that stretch. And it's it's. It's kind of concerning. It's kind of worrying to think about because uh, it should never, never have gotten to this point. This has been the Ball Don't Lie podcast. I am your host. You can follow me on Twitter at Audie Elmore, A-U-T-Y-E-L-M-O-R-E. I told you I, I posted a poll question. It should be on my still on my Twitter for some of you, um, at Audie Elmore on Twitter. And I said, by 2030, who makes the playoffs first? Because it doesn't feel like the Reds are going to make the playoffs this year and 71 people so far have said, 69% of them have said that the Bengals are going to make the playoffs first by 2030, which is, uh, you know, I think that's probably true, but it's embarrassing, honestly, because the Reds have have been in a position and, and were in a position earlier this year to make the postseason. 
Uh, next week, I'm sure we'll talk more NFL. I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about, college football and things going around, and maybe we'll try to find a guest. I don't know. I'm just kind of taking it day by day and getting uh, all these different things going on. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at AudioMore, A-U-T-Y-E-L-M-O-R-E. In the meantime, remember that ball don't lie. And as always, have fun. Be safe. Go Bucks. Go Bucks.